0: You're seeing dramatic changes from week to week in the market's assessment of where the Fed funds rate is gonna go. And I've I've never seen this amount of uncertainty and volatility from a week to week basis as to what the Fed's gonna do. I think that's a major driver. When volatility picks up though, then naturally liquidity falls uh, because it's harder to manage risk. And then of course that begets more volatility as liquidity falls. So you got a little bit of of a trap there.
1: You're listening to Trader's Insight Radio by Interactive Brokers. Find more podcasts and daily market commentary at TradersInsight.News. Please remember, any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to IBKR Traders Insight Radio Podcast. I'm Stephen Levine, Senior Market Analyst at Interactive Brokers and your host for today's program. We'll we'll be talking with Jason Bloom, Invesco's Head of Fixed Income and Alternative ETF Product Strategy, along with Joe Burke, IBQR's Head of Fixed Income, to help make sense of the recent inflation picture, its impact on rates and the yield curve, as well as its relationship or correlation with economic recessions. Welcome, Jason, Joe. Great to have you here with us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, really excited you're both here. Thanks so much for coming. There's been a great deal of attention in the news media, obviously, and within financial markets, really just everywhere, I mean among friends, family, everyone seems to be talking about inflation. That's for good reason, it seems. I mean it's it's certainly concerning. Recent US CPI, the consumer price index, hit an annual rate not seen in more than forty years. This is driven by Higher prices for food, for gas, for used vehicles. Producer prices are also soaring to astronomical heights. I mean, not only in the US, but you know, also in Germany. This is Europe's main growth engine. Consumer prices there have also seen a 40 year plus higher, 40 year high. So there are a lot of questions here. So I thought we'd just dive right in and ask you, Jason, first, uh, if you could help us understand exactly. What is inflation? How did we get here? And, you know, is what we're seeing purely a consequence of, say, decades long, plus accommodative central bank monetary policy and fiscal spending? Or are there other factors at work here? So,
0: yeah, I mean, at the most basic level, you know, inflation and obviously there are different ways to calculate it. And people argue over the best way to calculate inflation. But at the end of the day, it, it, you know, CPI for example, the consumer price index uh, that everyone sees in America is really an attempt to to measure, you know, how much does it cost this year versus last year, uh, right, to purchase a basket of goods of the same quality, yeah. right? So um, now, if I if I am able to buy a laptop this year with double the processing power of a laptop last year, but it costs more, that might not show up as inflation because I'm getting more. Right. For 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 each dollar. But at the end of the day, you know, this year versus last year, what does that cost? And, um I, I you know, it, this year versus last year, including food and energy, um we're looking at, you know, last month, eight and a half percent inflation rate. So the same basket of goods cost eight and a half percent more uh, than it did a year ago, which, as you mentioned, uh, is a high
1: that we haven't seen since the 70s. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, and what really what drives this? I mean, what drives yeah. inflation to yeah. these levels?
0: Well, you know, I really don't think that it is the the culmination of that de- this decade of easy money that we've had because really for the first 8 of the last 10 years, the Fed was not actually able to get the inflation that they were wanting to get. Inflation was a little bit lower than what they considered to be a healthy level of inflation. And, um, and and so really, I think that we flipped economic regimes during the pandemic. When you look at the federal, uh, the federal Reserve stimulus that they injected into the money supply was triple the stimulus we had around the financial crisis, right? Yep. Put yep. this in proportion. Unprecedented. Uh, the fiscal stimulus that came from the United States government to try to support the consumer while the, while the economy was forcibly shut down for a few minute, minutes. Minutes. Uh, was tremendous on a scale that we've never seen before, and and um, in, in the the government kind of ran a little bit wild with that. You know, we got another multi-trillion dollar stimulus package in um, 2021 when the, a lot of people were getting back to work, uh, and the consumer was already flush, yeah. and that resulted in it now and also the to the extent that the pandemic uh, restricted access to services, everyone pivoted their spending to goods, right? So we got all the stimulus coming at the same time that the demand for goods made a a gap higher by 20 percent in a global supply chain that probably couldn't have handled that to begin with was being hobbled by COVID disruptions. You know, it was a recipe for higher prices. And so, um, yeah, so I I would, though, I would, though, kind of look at the last couple of years and the um, on the unprecedented intervention by government um, that is, is likely the cause of what we're seeing now.
1: Yeah, that's it's a great, great, great observation. And I think that, you know, we'll come back to that in a bit, because what happens in unprecedented times, I would think, is rather difficult to analyze. But yeah. um, where do you think we're headed with this? I mean, where do you think in, inflation could be going, you know, in the U.S. or even in Germany? I mean, Germany uh, yeah. had inflation levels that were really unseen or through the roof or, you I mean, just yeah. incredible during, say – days post-World War One in Weimar. I mean, are, are we headed in that kind yeah. of direction?
0: Uh, no, I don't think so. We are seeing uh, headline numbers, right, that are, uh, you know, getting into that territory that we saw in the, during those different periods in time. But they're really happening for very different reasons. And so uh, in, in, even if you look at inflation in the United States, I kind of ran through, you know, what happened during the pandemic that initially jolted inflation to higher levels. And what you're actually seeing now is that goods inflation, as the Fed expected, has actually started to abate. Unfortunately, it's passing the baton to some cost push inflation that's being caused by the commodity price shock to the global economy. A lot of the inflation you're seeing in Germany isn't the result of an overstimulated economy from the demand side, it's cost push inflation from the, the enormous increase in materials and energy costs that they've seen there. And unfortunately, that looks to be a fairly sticky dynamic, given the war in Ukraine and the impact that's having on commodities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. I've also seen it attributed to supply constraints because of COVID. And we've heard that a lot. We've heard supply constraints a lot. And I don't know if that's something it seems to be something that Germany obviously is also contending with and could be a reason for their higher prices of food, for example.
0: Yeah, I mean, it did start to feel like that that excuse was wearing out, but it's true. We just saw another round of lockdowns in China, yep. 40 million people at a time in Shanghai where they make so many of these goods. It, it makes sense. Like, you know, the truck drivers can't drive the supplies of the factory. The factories are shutting down and, you know, that reduces supply and keeps prices higher. So, no, it is a legitimate um, um, explanation. Yep. And hopefully, as we, hopefully we emerge from COVID this year, we see hopefully another variant doesn't make the round. Uh, But if if we do emerge from this, then you would expect in the second half of the year for goods inflation to to soften. Just upside a bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And since you're both in fixed income, I'd love to get your your thoughts on how the Fed is combating inflation with monetary policy. I'm sure you have your eyes on what the Fed is doing. Joe, maybe I start with you and, and what you think. What do you think the Fed is doing if it's effective or you think it will be effective in combating inflation going forward
2: well interesting question thanks Steve um, I think the um you know it's it's clear that they're they're pairing their balance sheet for one um, and they're starting to do some rate hikes it's It's really unclear um, as to you know how many how many hikes we're going to have and every day it seems to be a different story you know just a few um, a few months ago we talked about you know 25 basis point hikes being uh you know being the, the the approach that the fed would take and it would be very incremental and gradual and now uh you know 50 basis points is sort of baked in for the next three meetings, and uh, there was talk of a 75 basis point hike, which brings us back to 1994. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's unclear how far they, they will go or need to go, um, and then I think, you know, they need to balance that with um, with the potential that if they do end up slowing the economy what does that do to consumer spending they could if if higher rates lead to a slowdown in the economy which leads to a quick slowdown in consumer spending we could be in a world of hurt there with with high rates and no growth so uh, i think it's it's very much a balancing act at this point and i um and it, I don't know. I, I I think the external factors are are also at issue. Uh, China, to um, yeah. to Jason's point, uh, the the war in the Ukraine, and um, and you know, hopefully, you know, as was said earlier, hopefully, COVID, you know, is is gone or will be gone soon. But you never know, and yeah. these are all risks to the economy.
1: Yeah, yeah, and for an institution like the Federal Reserve to really need to have a certain level of confidence from those who are putting their trust in the dollar and their ability to rein in stability, uh, rein in inflation. These uncertainties seem to raise a lot of red flags, at least in my view. Jason, what do you think? Do you think that they'll be effective enough at combating inflation? Or are those uncertainties something that you think will ultimately destroy a great deal of confidence?
0: Well, you know, we we used to be talking about tail risks and whether the tails were fat or thin. (laughs) Yeah. And and we are living in a world where that, you know, the the tails are dominating. Right. The narrative and the economy and the dynamic, there's no risk like they're here and we're living in the tail. And so um, to your point, like the Fed, from a forecasting standpoint, is really hobbled and um they've they've kind of quietly admitted this and so that's why they're going to be data dependent like nobody's trying you know you know everyone has been wrong about forecasting growth and inflation now what's interesting is growth has been a lot stronger and inflation has been a lot stronger like they've been under right they've been taking the under and losing on that constantly so um you know, even the numbers today now, you know, everyone saw the headline of, you know, negative growth on a quarter over quarter basis a negative one point four. But that it wasn't really negative. That was just real growth. Right. You took a six and a half percent you know growth rate and um, and applied an eight percent inflation rate to it. So nominal growth is actually quite strong. The consumer held up pretty well. Not, you know, you know, it's all relative to forecasts. Um, and what's interesting this time around is, you know, we talk about the consumer and, and there is that concern, right? You And there's actually a hope, right, that, that things slow down a little. You know, you're t- looking at the consumers just spending like this is uh, like, you know, like <laughs> spending like it's 1999 here. Nobody knows what's going to yeah, happen yeah. Um, because you're looking at record hotel prices in Florida. Right. And then you, you ask the hotel association about they're like it's demands through the roof. We got 90% occupancy rates We're you know, we're charging a thousand bucks a night for a hotel room that costs 500 bucks a night, you know, in 2019 and people are willing to pay it. Okay. Well, you know, for everyone's health and the inflation, you hope that slows down a little, but I think what it speaks to is that the consumer is still pretty flush right now. And we were talking earlier about the fact that, you know, debt to income ratios are at historic lows. So yeah. the, It's going to be a while before the consumers like tapped out, like, and you know, the credit cards are becoming a problem um and and then I'll, the other thing i'll say though that you know what was really missing in that 2011 to 2020 decade was capital investment corporate capital investment never came back and it, you know there's a variety of reasons for that you know business confidence was low you know we're recovering from the global financial crisis the government's keeping regulation on business at the same time um but what we've seen over the last 2 years as a result and in some ways linked to the energy transition right the uh, converting to electric vehicles and renewable energy and everything. And that huge infrastructure package that goes along with that yeah. is that capital investment is is on a tear right now and um, and shows no sign of rolling over. And that's going to be a new support for growth that we did not see in the last uh, decade where the consumer was, you know, we're completely dependent on the consumer to keep things going.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as long as I suppose there's, uh, you know, return on investment from that capital spending, I think we'll be you know, would be that, yeah. that would be, you know, the ideal situation. What I'd hate to see yeah. are the fat tails of the fat tails at this point. I think that that would be really, really <laughs> apocalyptic, I suppose. At any rate, and in terms of rates, because we're talking about rates now. So I think the segue of at any rate uh, makes a lot of sense. Joe, how's the yield curve been doing through all of this and through inflation? You know, 10 years been ticking up ever since it seems the Fed hiked rates in March. But where do you see them going from here? I can imagine that they can only really be going higher. There's also been inversions in the yield curve, 2-year, 10-year. Yeah. We saw 3-month, 10-year, I think, in 2019. Uh, but would love to get your insights as to why this is happening and uh, where you see it going.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, I look at the 2s, two, 10s uh, pretty regularly. And, you know, I think in the one-year uh one year ago, we were about 152 yep. positive uh, twos to tens, and then gradually uh, that decreased over time. Um, we dropped below 100 basis points back in November, and from there, it's just continued on down. And just a few weeks ago, we were inverted. I think we got to minus eight basis points. Um You know, which is perfectly normal. You would expect that in a rising interest rate environment or expectations of rising interest rates. So you expect some level of flattening. Um, What I found interesting was the fact that we went from minus eight to... Plus 30 in an environment where we went from talking about gradualism to talking about, you know, uh, you know, take out the life jackets because it's you know, we're going to have to raise rates very aggressively and um, and a a number of times over the next few months. So that struck me as a little bit odd. And, you know, uh, additionally, some of these moves we're again, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Some of these price moves. Seeing the two-year note trading, um, you know, with an eight-thirty-second range in the in the course of a day, it, it is is typically the kind of thing that happens when there's, you know, a a major event like a you know a Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers type of default or you know something um, some external force that's uh, that's very dramatic. Um, it's not typical uh, to see that. The, you know, the two-year note tends to be a little sleepy. You know, highly correlated to the Fed funds rate or expectations of Fed funds. So, you know, to see see it move like that is is really troubling, and I and I don't know what. Uh, how to explain those moves Um, perhaps it's a lack of liquidity in the marketplace Um, uh, perhaps it could be dealers allocating less balance sheet to the markets and you know refusing to take position which is causing increased volatility but but again that's conjecture on my part i don't know
1: yeah what what, what are your thoughts there jason
2: yeah well i i think just uh you know maybe take it take up the
0: baton from joe's comments there is that you know you're seeing estimate to the extent that as joe mentioned the two-year tends to be tied to expectations around the fed funds rate you're seeing dramatic changes from week to week in the market's assessment of where the fed funds rate is going to go yeah. uh I, i've never you know i've only been doing this for 25 years and I've i've never seen this amount of uncertainty and volatility from a week-to-week week basis as to what the fed's going to do Right. And and that's I think that's a major driver. And in, when volatility picks up, though, then naturally liquidity falls uh, because it's harder to manage risk. And then, of course, that begets more volatility as liquidity falls. So you got a little bit of a of a trap there, um, but it, it makes sense. It, it really does make sense. And because it going back to the original comments of, you know, the amount of uncertainty as to the path of growth, yep. inflation and as a result, interest rates. Incredibly high. Now, I think that when you look at the shape of the curve, what was interesting is we've only had one major round of QT in the last 50 years, and that you know wound down in that you know sort of 2015 through 2018 timeframe. But but what I think the Fed's preferred path is to wind down quantitative easing, stop buying bonds, and then you know three or four months later, even six months later, then you start raising interest rates. That was the path in the last cycle, and. Uh, Or or that was, you know, that was the hope in the last cycle. And and it worked more. It was very gradual. This time, what you had was the Fed crashing their bond buying program right into the first Fed rate hike. And it was only a few weeks ago that they stopped buying bonds. And so I think what you had was a curve that was when the Fed's of course, buying bonds, they're flattening the curve. So you had a curve going into the first Fed rate hike cycle and then these accelerating expectations around rate hikes that was a lot flatter than it should have been. And um, and you had every trading house and institution in the world that has a curve view putting a flattener on. And as soon as Lael Brainard came out and said we're gonna we might accelerate quantitative tightening, the balance sheet runoff if we need to to slow the economy down, yep. all this all those curve flatteners started just piling out of those trades and the curve steepened violently. Uh, as Joe mentioned, we went from negative eight to actually went to forty uh, in a couple of weeks. And now we're back here at positive 21 or so. And I I think now we're going to start to see a curve that begins to act like a real real pricing uh, mechanism rather than something that's being so distorted and manipulated by the Fed.
1: I mean, do you think such an approach by Brainerd would be effective?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, to the extent that they want to slow down the housing market, yeah, sure. You, you, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're already at five plus in mortgage rates. And what were we at three a couple of months ago, three or four months ago? So, um, yeah, that that will be effective, uh, especially as it relates to housing.
1: Joe, what do you think the 10-year could go, say, halfway through the year or by year end? My guess is somewhere in the
2: three and a half to four range. I mean, I think we would struggle to get past four. Yeah. And, you know, what, what I was... Alluding to earlier uh, regarding consumer spending is if these higher rates impede, uh, slow down consumer spending, then I don't see, see it going much past four uh, at all. I mean, I, I, I read this week that um, one of the economists from uh, Bridgewater uh, was looking for uh, the 10-year to go to four and a half. Um, I think that's aggressive, but you never know.
1: So let's turn this into a corporate bond story then with rates going higher like they are. When I was covering corporate bonds, and I was doing this for quite some time as a journalist, I was recognizing that there were a lot of overseas buyers of corporate issuance, that they were either coming from negative interest rate environments or they were just basically on a hunt for yield. And so in terms of issuance, one, I'm anxious to see whether we're still seeing that effect from overseas buyers today, and two, whether the window for corporate issuance will start to close or become even just very rocky, the more volatile rates are as we get closer to year end.
0: So I like to watch the 10-year boon yields to see, you know, where is relative value, you know, U.S. versus Europe. Yep. And you know what's typical is that the I've noticed over the last seven or eight years is that the ten-year doesn't like to get much more than 200 basis points above Boon yields. To your point, eventually people just pile in to buy that extra yield over here, and usually the spread is lower than that. But that seems to be where the market doesn't like to stretch much past that. So now Boon yields have gone from zero to 90 basis points in literally a several we- in a couple of weeks. A uh, month and a half or so. And that, that's an incredible move in rate. So if, if Boon yields continue to move up, as you would expect, as Europe, you know, confronts this, uh, winds down possibly their asset purchase program later this year, then I think that gives you the leash to go right to where Joe mentioned, you know, go to, uh, to 4% in the 10 year. Um, historically, when the 10 year starts to catch up to CPI, it usually does that in a fairly violent fashion. So if by the end of the year, we get CPI to four, four and a half, then that would be consistent. With, you know, um, uh, uh, the three uh, big moves we saw in the 70s and early 80s, that's real yields tried to get back into positive territory. Um, and to your point, I, I, what I've heard is that corporate issuers are eager to uh, to call bonds that are callable and roll that debt now, expecting they would have to face higher prices next
1: year. Yep.
0: So um, you would expect issuance to be robust this year if that, if that expectation remains.
1: I think CIFMA has it. As of the end of March, where investment grade issuance has been about 4% higher year over year, while high yield is down almost 70%, I think they're just not taking that, that risk. Or maybe they can't tap the markets at this point, where there might be too much risk and not enough story confidence in the company. Not sure, but uh, yeah. a pretty precipitous decline, I would say, year over year in that respect. Yeah. Do you think that corporate issuers, Joe, are going to find a fast closing window this year? it depends
2: on how quickly uh the fed funds move up and how quickly the 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 curve uh steepens um you know what we've seen is a lot of uh issuance from uh the highly leveraged industries financial services in particular um there's been a lot of debt issuance i do think that um that will continue um jason's point about you know calling bonds and Mm -hmm. um and issuing them in the new uh, now um makes a lot of sense. I think that is uh, probably a big driver for what's happening and uh, you know it it'll con- I don't know how short the window is, but um, I do think that there'll be a lot of appetite to issue debt in the next um, the next few months.
1: Yeah. Jason, there are those analysts that point to the yield curve inversions as being an indicator of a coming recession. I understand something like you know, 12, 16, 18 months out from the time of the inversion, but do you think this type of analysis? I mean, you mentioned an unprecedented environment in terms of fiscal spending. Do you think that this type of analysis, not only because of the fiscal spending, but also because of the unprecedented monetary policy backdrop, do you think that those kinds of analyses about inversions still hold any kind of real substance? I mean, can we really rely on any historical statistics or analyses when we're in that fat tail, as, as you said?
0: yeah no i think that in maybe just sort of expanding on the point i made earlier is that if we get into this environment where the fed leaves the curve alone essentially right And the market it, be, it, and it becomes a real market-based pricing pricing mechanism uh then i think and, and if you if you look the fed just sort of republished their research on curve inversions just i hope think to kind of remind the market that the real accurate predictor of a recession is the three-month t-bill versus the 18-month uh, T-bill, t bill or note and and um or treasury yield and and then a sec- close second is the three month t bill versus the ten year and so we didn't see yeah you, know, you mentioned twos tens inverted but the three month and ten is still pretty steep uh, as Joe mentioned earlier and um I think that as we get into the later part of this year with the fed sort of out of that long end of the curve yeah if the 10 year three month inverts I'd be looking that at that uh, very you know a- a- as most likely predicting, uh, you know, an impending recession, but we're all. I think there may have way. been
1: an inversion of that in August of 2019.
0: And and had it not been for the pandemic, there are several strategists who said we were likely headed into a recession. One.
1: Wow. Yeah. Very very interesting stuff. So, I would like to really understand this a little bit clearer. What the actual relationship is between inflation and recession and how we get from one to the next?
0: Yeah. I, so, so really in, inflation is actually, generally speaking, a sign of strength in the economy, generally speaking, right? Especially if it's the result of demand pull. Um, now, if you get a, a commodity a disruption to the commodity markets, that shock price is higher and eventually that actually ends up being very, highly negative for growth. Um, and then, you get a Fed who says, "Look, price stability at the end of the day is the foundation of a healthy economy. We have to arrest these price increases, and if that requires a recession, which Volker, you know, clearly decided that it did back in the 70s and early 80s, yeah. then then you, then that's it, right? So so high inflation does in some way, you know, uh, portend a recession, but it's it's more along the lines of what's the Fed going to eventually do to get inflation under control." They might have to trigger a recession to do that. I I don't think the Fed has their Volcker hat on yet. (laughs) Um, I I think they're going to go to two and a half to three and they're going to wait and see if that was enough. And we're going to see where growth is. But, you know, certainly that risk is high.
1: I wonder what the 70s or 80s would have been like without Volcker. I guess maybe that's what we'll experience now in a sense. Uh, yeah. But maybe, maybe worse. I don't know. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, I, I don't like to speculate uh, in terms of the future. But it would be great, at least at this point, to get both your insights on hedging strategies. So I'd like to hedge against inflation. What do I do? I mean, do I go into tips? Do I go into certain commodities, gold? Do I go into cryptocurrencies? I mean, what, what do I do?
0: Historically, a broad commodity portfolio has been the most uh, potent inflation hedge in a portfolio. Gold actually doesn't do that well when inflation is hot because usually it's accompanied by rising rates. And gold hates rising rates. Hmm. So gold is okay. But uh, the beta to inflation, like for every 100 bips increase, in, in 1% increase in CPI, gold goes up like 2%. Commodities, on the other hand, broad, broad commodities portfolio for every 1% increase in CPI, historically, they go up 12%. <laughs> So they're six times more potent than gold tips. Tip, well, tips are better than regular treasuries, but they're so the vol is so low in their bonds with duration, which doesn't like rising rates. And you need you need to have something like 60 percent tips in your portfolio to be fully hedged against inflation. So uh, broad commodities, real estate, actually, uh, real estate does quite yeah. well. Uh, be, the beta there is about six. So um, not as good as commodities, but kind of the next best thing. Equities are around three. So equities, you know, they, they're okay. Not a great inflation. Commodities uh, historically have been the most potent inflation hedge.
1: Well, we've raised a lot of concerns as well about the confidence in the Fed. And so I suppose that translates also into confidence in the dollar or fiat currencies, mm, right. what, whether or not that trust uh, remains there. Or will the currency become devalued to the extent that we saw in certain countries where there's been excessive monetary accommodation, like in Zimbabwe or Weimar, Germany, where we saw catastrophes in currency. And so if that sentiment is there, and I think a lot of motivation to go into cryptocurrencies is to move away from what they may consider as being too much of a risk in terms of their own country's fiat currencies, which is a very scary prospect, but it seems to be going in that direction.
0: Yeah, looking at at um, at currencies, you know the, the dollar uh, dollar index up almost eight percent this year, even the trade weighted dollars up almost four percent. that that's becoming a large concern for me around growth globally. Um, there's a very, very strong relationship between the US dollar and emerging market equity earnings and emerging market equity performance. This is really bad for EM, for the yep. dollar to be on a tear like this. And then, you know, people are starting to, you're starting to hear a little more conversation about the the dramatic fall in the Japanese yen. Um, and the Japanese Central Bank, you know, Bank of Japan coming out this morning and kind of surprising people saying, you know, we are only committed to keeping interest rates low. Uh, they're, they're taking no action. Yep overtly in the markets to stem the decline in the yen. And, you know, to the extent that 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 currency, if it were to collapse, you know, that that could be um, very, very bad for uh, for Japan and then for the world, because that'll have massive ripple effects because the Japanese have been one of the biggest buyers of U.S. treasuries over the last couple of years. So if they sell treasuries to bring that home to support the yen.
1: We're seeing a massive uh, devaluation of the U.S. government treasuries. Yeah. 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 So in terms of outlook. I mean, and we've discussed outlook, but broadly speaking, in terms of inflation, and this was our main focus of concern, where do you see it going? Where do you see us going? And uh, does it plateau? Does it end at some point? What do you think? What's what's your, your let's say your worst case scenario and your, your, your best case scenarios? Joe, maybe we'll start with you.
2: Yeah, I think the worst case scenario is that the Fed loses its uh, willingness to raise rates uh, enough to control inflation. And because, you know, it's not supposed to be political, but there is a political component to it, right? They don't, they don't want to put the country into a recession and cause pain and suffering, right? That's, that's a big part of it. But, you know, if they lack the, if they don't have the will to, uh, to raise rates aggressively and to a level where they, they do, inflation, um, then I think we're, we're in for, um, for a, a lot of problems. I think, you know, we'll, we won't, if we lose the battle with price stability, um, I think we, we just have many, many more problems. I don't know where that goes. So I, I don't know that that's happened before, um, where we've had this, you know, spiraling inflation and an unwillingness to control it. But you know, between the size of the of the um, the deficit, the amount of debt we have outstanding, um, these rate hikes are expensive yeah. uh, for the government and con- yeah. and ultimately the taxpayers. So I don't know where that goes. But if we if we can't get that done um, and we can't raise rates sufficiently, that I, I see that as
1: a big problem. That sounds like a runaway freight train. Is what that sounds like. It could be. Yeah. Jason, what do you think? I think that that's
0: a real risk that's a real risk. Um, you know, our expectation is, uh, especially over the next six months with crude oil leveling off around a hundred dollars a barrel here, that we will see infl- inflation peak. I think that that eight and a half print, um, could be the, the top. Uh, we'll see Or the yeah. next CPI, either that one or the next, I think will be the top and we will see that headline number coming down. Um, but it's gonna, it's, there's, there's a lot of momentum in the, the inflation dynamic right now. Um, we're starting to see a few cracks in the surveys of employers who are um, a little more reluctant to continue the wage spiral. Um, and so the hope here is that if we get the labor force participation rate coming up, there's still a couple million people that are out of the workforce. Hopefully we get some more of them back. Yep. Again, we get wages softening. Um, the, the consumer kind of wears themselves out here with, with their vacation spending over the next few months. The hope is this all comes back to earth uh, somewhat, but not, not, you know, but I, I still think that, you know, I'd rather, I, I would take the over. Um, if, if the forecast is 3% CPI by December, I, I'd be surprised if we get to that for the way commodity prices are going to go. And by the way, look for higher crude prices in the second half of the year after the SPR release has been spent. Um, and, and, Russia production continues to decline and that will then again, sort of preserve that higher level of inflation. Um, if we can get it to trend at 4% rather than eight, maybe everybody will be okay with that. But, you know, we got a lot of work to do before we get there.
1: Well. Let's uh, hope for the best, I suppose, uh, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day. it's It's been really great. Well, this is a really, really great conversation. Both of you, Jason, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's really great, and I hope you'll be, you'll be back with us. Love to. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Stephen. That'd be awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, and listeners can learn a lot more about inflation and rates in our daily market briefings at tradersinsight.news. There you'll also find a lot of great commentary from Invesco, as well as through our webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, and more educational courses at tradersacademy.online. And until next time, I'm Stephen Levine with Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to Traders Insight Radio. As always, there's more content at tradersinsight.news. And if you're interested in learning more about Interactive Brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education materials such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at ibkr.com. There's a substantial risk of loss in foreign exchange trading. The settlement date of foreign exchange trades can vary due to time zone differences in bank holidays. The interest rate on borrowed funds must be considered when computing the cost of trades across multiple markets. Trading in digital assets, including cryptocurrencies, is especially risky and is only for individuals with a high risk tolerance and the financial ability to sustain losses. Eligibility to trade in digital asset products may vary based on jurisdiction. Interactive Brokers is not affiliated with and does not endorse or recommend any third-party investment information, advice, services, or products discussed in this episode. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry, or sector or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary, seek professional advice.